Hi, everybody. Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. I'm so glad you tuned in. Now, before I get to today's reading, I want to share with you guys something really nice that happened to me today. I was in the grocery store, and I was in line to check out, and I noticed a guy behind me, and he had only a gallon of milk. So I just told him that he could go ahead of me, and he said, oh, that's really nice. A few seconds later, he kind of leans in and he goes, um, I don't want to offend you, but can I pay for your groceries? And I thought it was a social media thing at first. And I asked him and he said, no, he said, you were just kind enough to let me go ahead of you. And I want to be kind to you in return. So he paid for my groceries. His name was David. David, I didn't tell you about my podcast, but in the wild event, you happen upon Carla Reads the Classics. Thank you again for your wonderful gesture today. I really appreciated it. And now on to the reason you came here today. I have for you three stories. The first is by Mark Twain, Samuel Taylor Clemens, and it's called, Was It Heaven or Hell? Wonderful story that I think you'll really enjoy. And then I have for you two stories by the French master of the short story himself, Guy de Maupassant. And the first one is called Moonlight, and the second one is called Bellflower. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I hope you really enjoyed the stories today. Please stay tuned. Okay, now this first story is called, Was It Heaven or Hell? And it was written by Samuel Taylor Clemens, also known as Mark Twain, in 1902. Chapter One. You confess it? You actually confess it. You told a lie. Chapter Two. The family consisted of four persons. Margaret Lester, widow, aged 36. Helen Lester, her daughter, aged 16, Mrs. Lester's maiden aunts, Hannah and Hester Gray, twins aged 67. Waking and sleeping, the three women spent their days and nights in adoring the young girl, in watching the movements of her sweet spirit in the mirror of her face, and refreshing their souls with the vision of her bloom and beauty, and listening to the music of her voice, and gratefully recognizing how rich and fair for them was the world with this presence in it and shuddering to think how desolate it would be with this light gone out of it. By nature and inside, the aged aunts were utterly dear and lovable and good, but in the matter of morals and conduct, their training had been so uncom uncompromisingly strict that it had made them exteriorly austere, not to say stern. Their influence was effective in the house, so effective that the mother and the daughter confirmed to its moral and religious requirements cheerfully, contentedly, happily, unquestionably. To do this had become second nature to them. And so in this peaceful heaven, there were no clashings, no irritations, no fault finding, no heart burnings. In it, a lie had no place. In it, a lie was unthinkable. In its speech was restricted to absolute truth iron-bound truth, implacable and uncompromising truth, let the resounding consequence be what they might. At last one day, under stress of circumstances, the darling of the house sullied her lips with a lie and confessed it with tears and self-upbraidings. There were not any words that can paint the consternation of the aunts. It was as if the sky had crumpled up and collapsed and the earth had tumbled to ruin with a crash. They sat side by side, white and stern, gazing speechless upon the culprit, 
who was on her knees before them with her face buried first in one lap and then the other, moaning and sobbing and appealing for sympathy and forgiveness and getting no response, humbly kissing the hand of one and then the other, only to see it withdrawn as suffering defilement by those soiled lips. Twice at intervals, Aunt Hester said in frozen amazement, "'You told a lie?' Twice at intervals, Aunt Hannah followed with the muttered and amazed ejaculation, You confess it. You actually confess it. You told a lie. It was all they could say. The situation was new, unheard of, incredible. They could not understand it. They did not know how to take hold of it. It approximately paralyzed speech. At length, it was decided that the erring child must be taken to her mother, who was ill and who ought to know what had happened. Helen begged, besought, implored that she might be spared this further disgrace and that her mother might be spared the grief and pain of it. But this could not be. Duty required the sacrifice. Duty takes precedence of all things. Nothing can absolve one from a duty. With a duty, no compromise is possible. Helen still begged and said the sin was her own. Her mother had no hand in it. Why must she be made to suffer for it? But the aunts were obdurate in their righteousness and said the law that visited the sins of the parent upon the child was by the right and reason reversible. And therefore it was but just that the innocent mother of a sinning child should suffer her rightful share of the grief and pain and shame, which were the allotted wages of sin. The three moved toward the sick room. At this time, the doctor was approaching the house. He was still a good distance away, however. He was a good doctor and a good man, and he had a good heart. But one had to know him a year to get over hating him, two years to learn to endure him, three years to learn to like him, and four and five to learn to love him. It was a slow and trying education, but it paid. He was of great stature. He had a leonine head, a leonine face, a rough voice, and an eye which was sometimes a pirate's and sometimes a woman's, according to the mood. He knew nothing about etiquette and cared nothing about it. In speech, manner, carriage, and conduct, he was the reverse of conventional. He was frank to the limit. He had opinions on all subjects. They were always on tap and ready for delivery, and he cared not a farthing whether his listener liked them or didn't. Whom he loved, he loved, and manifested it. Whom he didn't love, he hated, and published it from the housetops. In his young days, he had been a sailor, and the salt airs of all the seas blew from him yet. He was a sturdy and loyal Christian, and believed he was the best one in the land, and the only one whose Christianity was perfectly sound, healthy, fully charged with common sense, and had no decayed places in it. People who had an axe to grind, or people who for any reason wanted to get on the soft side of him, called him the Christian, a phrase whose delicate flattery was music to his ears, and whose capital T was such an enchanting and vivid object to him that he could see it when it fell out of a person's mouth, even in the dark. Many who were fond of him stood on their consciences with both feet and brazenly called him by that large title habitually because it was a pleasure to them to do anything that would please him. And with eager and cordial malice, his extensive and diligently cultivated crop of enemies gilded it, beflowered it, expanded it to the only Christian. 
Of these two titles, the latter had the wider currency, the enemy being greatly in the majority attended to that. Whatever the doctor believed, he believed with all his heart and would fight for it whenever he got the chance. And if the intervals between chances grew to be irksomely wide, he would invent ways of shortening them himself. He was severely conscientious, according to his rather independent lights, and whatever he took to be a duty he performed, no matter whether the judgment of the professional moralists agreed with his own or not. At sea, in his young days, he had used profanity freely. But as soon as he was converted, he made a rule, which he rigidly stuck to ever afterward, never to use it except on the rarest occasions, and then only when duty commanded. He had been a hard drinker at sea, but after his conversion, he became a firm and outspoken teetotaler in order to be an example to the young, and from that time, he seldom drank, never indeed except when it seemed to him to be a duty, a condition which sometimes occurred a couple of times a year, but never as many as five times. Necessarily, such a man is impressionable, impulsive, emotional. This was one and had no gift at hiding his feelings, or if he had it, he took no trouble to exercise it. He carried his soul's prevailing weather in his face, and when he entered a room, the parasols or umbrellas went up, figuratively speaking, according to the indications. When the soft light was in his eye, it meant approval and delivered a benediction. When he came with a frown, he lowered the temperature ten degrees. He was a well-beloved man in the house of his friends, but sometimes a dreaded one. He had a deep affection for the Lester household, and its several members returned this feeling with interest. They mourned over his kind of Christianity, and he frankly scoffed at theirs, but both parties went on loving each other just the same. He was approaching the house out of the distance. The aunts and the culprit were moving toward the sick chamber. Chapter 3 The three last named stood by the bed, the aunts austere, the transgressor softly sobbing. The mother turned her head on the pillow. Her tired eyes flamed up instantly with sympathy and passionate mother love when they fell upon her child, and she opened the refuge and shelter of her arms. Wait, said Aunt Hannah, and put out her hand and stayed the girl from leaping into them. Helen, said the other aunt impressively, tell your mother all. Purge your soul, leave nothing unconfessed. Standing stricken and forlorn before her judges, the young girl mourned her sorrowful tale through the end. Then, in a passion of appeal, cried out, Oh, mother, can't you forgive me? Won't you forgive me? I am so desolate. Forgive you, my darling. Oh, come to my arms. There, lay your head upon my breast and be at peace. If you had told a thousand lies... There was a sound, a warning, the clearing of a throat. The aunts glanced up and withered in their clothes. There stood the doctor, his face a thundercloud. Mother and child knew nothing of his presence. They lay locked together, heart to heart, steeped in immeasurable content, dead to all things else. The physician stood many moments glaring and glooming upon the scene before him, studying it, analyzing it, searing out its genesis. Then he put up his hand and beckoned to the aunts. They came trembling to him and stood humbly before him and waited. He bent down and whispered, Didn't I tell you this patient must be protected from all excitement? What the hell have you been doing? Clear out of this place. They obeyed 
Half an hour later, he appeared in the parlor, serene, cheery, clothed in sunshine, conducting Helen with his arm about her waist, petting her and saying gentle and playful things to her. And so she was also her sunny and happy self again. Now then, he said, goodbye, dear, go to your room and keep away from your mother and behave yourself. But wait, put out your tongue. There, that will do. You're as sound as a nut. He patted her cheek and added, run along now. I want to talk to these aunts. She went from the presence, his face clouded over again at once. And as he sat down, he said, you two have been doing a lot of damage and maybe some good, some good, yes, such as it is. That woman's disease is typhoid. You've brought it to a show up, I think, with your insanities. And that's a service, such as it is. I hadn't been able to determine what it was before. With one impulse, the old lady sprang to their feet, quaking with terror. Sit down. What are you proposing to do? Do? We must fly to her. We... You'll do nothing of the kind. You've done enough harm for one day. Do you want to squander all your capital of crimes and follies in one single deal? Sit down, I tell you. I have arranged for her to sleep. She needs it. If you disturb her without my orders, I'll brain you, if you've got the materials for it. They sat down, distressed and indignant, but obedient under compulsion. He proceeded. Now, then, I want this case explained. They wanted it explained to me, as if there hadn't been emotion or excitement enough already. You knew my orders. How did you dare go in there and get up that riot? Hester looked appealing at Hannah. Hannah returned a beseeching look at Hester. Neither wanted this dance of unsympathetic orchestra. The doctor came to their help. He said, begin, Hester. Fingering the fringes of her shawl and with lowered eyes, Hester said timidly, we should not have disobeyed for any ordinary cause, but this was vital. This was a duty. With a duty, one has no choice. One must put all lighter considerations aside and perform it. We were obliged to arraign her before her mother. She told a lie. The doctor glowered upon the woman a moment and seemed to be trying to work up in his mind an understanding of a wholly incomprehensible proposition. Then he stormed out. She told a lie, did she? God bless my soul. I tell a million a day, and so does every doctor, and so does everybody, including you, for that matter. And that was the important thing that authorized you to venture to disobey my orders and imperil that woman's life. Look here, Hester Gray, this is pure lunacy. That girl couldn't tell a lie that was intended to injure a person. The thing is impossible, absolutely impossible. You know it yourselves, both of you. You know it perfectly well. Hannah came to her sister's rescue. Hester didn't mean that it was that kind of a lie, and it wasn't, but it was a lie. Well, upon my word, I've never heard such nonsense. Haven't you got sense enough to discriminate between lies? Don't you know the difference between a lie that helps and a lie that hurts? All lies are sinful, said Hannah, setting her lips together like a vice. All lies are forbidden. The only Christian fidgeted impatiently in his chair. He went to attack this proposition, but he did not quite know how or where to begin. Finally, he made a venture. Hester, wouldn't you tell a lie to shield a person from an undeserved injury or shame? No, 
Not even a friend? No. Not even your dearest friend? No, I would not. The doctor struggled in silence a while with the situation. Then he asked, not even to save him from bitter pain and misery and grief? No, not even to save his life. Another pause. Then, nor his soul? There was a hush, a silence which endured a, a measurable interval. Then Hester answered in a low voice, but with decision. Nor his soul? No one spoke for a while. Then the doctor said, Is it the same with you, Hannah? Yes, she answered. I ask you both. Why? Because to tell such a lie or any lie is a sin and could cost us the loss of our own souls. Would indeed if we died without time to repent. Strange, strange. It is past belief. Then he asked roughly, Is such a soul as that worth saving? He rose up mumbling and grumbling and started for the door, stumping vigorously along. At the threshold, he turned and rasped out an admonition. Reform! Drop this mean and sordid and selfish devotion to, to the saving of your shabby little souls and hunt up something to do that's got some dignity to it. Risk your souls. Risk them in good causes. Then if you lose them, why should you care? Reform! The good old gentlewoman sat paralyzed, pulverized, outraged, insulted, and brooded in bitterness and indignation over these blasphemies. They were hurt to the heart, poor old ladies, and said they could never forgive these injuries. Reform! They kept repeating that word resentfully. Reform! And learned to tell lies. Time slipped along, and in due course, a change came over their spirits. They had completed the human being's first duty, which is to think about himself until he has exhausted the subject. Then he is in a condition to take up minor interests and think of other people. This changes the complexion of his spirits, generally wholesomely. The minds of the two old ladies reverted to their beloved niece and the fearful disease which had smitten her. Instantly, they forgot the hurts their self-love had received, and a passionate desire rose in their hearts to go to the help of the sufferer and comfort her with their love and minister to her and labor for her the best they could with their weak hands and joyfully and affectionately wear out their poor old bodies in her dear service, if only they might have the privilege. And we shall have it, said Hester with tears running down her face. There are no nurses comparable to us, for there are no others that will stand their watch by the bed till they drop and die, and God knows we would do that. Amen, said Hannah, smiling approval and endorsement through the mist of moisture that blurred her glasses. The doctor knows us and knows we will not disobey again, and he will call no others he will not dare. Dare, said Hester with temper, and dashing the water from her eyes, he will dare anything that Christian devil, but it will do him no good to try it this time. But laws, Hannah, after all said and done, he is gifted and wise and good, and he would not think of such a thing. It is surely time for one of us to go to that room. What is keeping him? Why doesn't he come and say so? They caught the sound of his approaching step. He entered, sat down, and began to talk. Margaret is a sick woman, he said. She is still sleeping, but she will wake presently. Then one of you must go to her. 
She will be worse before she is better. Pretty soon, a night and day watch must be set. How much of it can you two undertake? All of it, burst from both ladies at once. The doctor's eyes flashed and he said with energy, You do ring true, you brave old relics, and you shall do all the nursing you can, for there's none to match you in that divine office in this town. But you can't do all of it, and it would be a crime to let you. It was grand praise, golden praise coming from such a source, and it took nearly all the resentment out of the aged twins' hearts. Your Tilly and my old Nancy shall do the rest. Good nurses both, white souls with black skins, watchful, loving, tender, just perfect nurses, and competent liars from the cradle. Look you, keep a little watch on Helen. She is sick, and is going to be sicker. The ladies looked a little surprised and not credulous, and Hester said, How is that? It isn't an hour since she said she was as sound as a nut. The doctor answered tranquilly. It was a lie. The ladies turned upon him indignantly, and Hannah said, How could you make an odious confession like that, in so indifferent a tone, when you know how we feel about all forms of... Hush! You are as ignorant as cats, both of you, and you don't know what you are talking about. You are like all the rest of the moral moles. You lie from morning till night, but because you don't do it with your mouths, but only with your lying eyes, your lying inflections, your deceptively misplaced emphasis, and your misleading gestures, you turn up your complacent noses and parade before God and the world as saintly and unsmirched truth-seekers, in whose cold storage souls a lie would freeze to death if it got there. Why will you humbug yourselves with that foolish notion that no lie is a lie except a spoken one? What is the difference between lying with your eyes and lying with your mouth? There is none. And if you would reflect a moment, you would see that it is so. There isn't a human being that doesn't tell a gross of lies every day of his life. And you, why, between you, you tell 30,000. Yet you flare up here in a lurid hypocritical horror because I tell that child a benevolent and sinless lie to protect her from her imagination, which would get to work and warm up her blood to a fever in an hour if I were disloyal enough to my duty to let it, which I should probably do if I were interested in saving my soul by such a reputable means. Come, let us reason together. Let us examine details. When you two were in the sick room raising that riot, would you have done it if you had known I was coming? Well, what? You would have slipped out and carried Helen with you, wouldn't you? The ladies were silent. What would be your what would be your object and intention? Well, what? To keep me from finding out your guilt, to beguile me, to infer that Margaret's excitement proceeded from some cause not known to you. In a word, to tell me a lie, a silent lie, moreover, a possibly harmful one. The twins colored, but did not speak. You not only tell myriads of silent lies, but you tell lies with your mouths, you two. That is not so. It is so, but only harmless ones. You never dream of uttering a harmful one. Do you know that is a concession and a confession? How do you mean? It is an unconscious concession that harmless lies are not criminal. It is a confession that you constantly make that's discrimination. For instance, you declined old Mrs. Foster's invitation last week to meet those odious hybees at supper in a polite note in which you expressed regret and said that you were very sorry you could not go. It was a lie. It was an unmitigated a lie as if was ever uttered. Deny it, Hester. 
It was a deny it, Hester, with another lie. Hester replied with a toss of her head. That will not do. Answer. Was it a lie or wasn't it? The color stole into the cheeks of both women, and with a struggle and an effort, they got out their confession. It was a lie. Good. The reform is beginning. There is hope for you yet. You will not tell a lie to save your dearest friend's souls, but you will spew out one without a scruple to save yourselves the discomfort of telling an unpleasant truth? He rose. Hester, speaking for both, said coldly, We have lied. We perceive it. It will occur no more. To lie is a sin. We shall never tell another one of any kind whatsoever. Even lies of courtesy or benevolence, to save any one a pang or a sorrow decreed for him by God. Ah, how soon you will fail. In fact, you have fallen already. For what you have just uttered is a lie. Goodbye. Reform. One of you, go to the sick room now. Chapter 4 Twelve Days Later Mother and child were lingering in the grip of the hideous disease. Of hope for either, there was little. The aged sisters looked white and worn, but they would not give up their posts. Their hearts were breaking, poor old things, but their grit was steadfast and indestructible. All the twelve days the mother had pined for the child, and the child for the mother. But both knew that the prayer of these longings could not be granted. When the mother was told, on the first day, that her disease was typhoid, she was frightened and asked if there was danger that Helen could have contracted it the day before, when she was in the sick chamber on that confession visit. Hester told her the doctor had pooh-poohed the idea. It troubled Hester to say it, although it was true, for she had not believed the doctor, but when she saw the mother's joy in the news, the pain in her conscience lost something of its force, a result which made her ashamed of the constructive deception which she had practiced, though not ashamed enough to make her distinctly and definitely wish she had refrained from it. From that moment, the sick woman understood that her daughter must remain away, and she said she would reconcile herself to the separation the best she could, for she would rather suffer death than to have her child's health imperiled. That afternoon, Helen had to take her bed ill. She grew worse during the night. In the morning, her mother asked after her, Is she well? Hester turned cold. She opened her lips, but the words refused to come. The mother lay languidly, looking, musing, waiting. Suddenly she turned white and gasped out, Oh my God, what is it? Is she sick? Then the poor aunt's tortured, then the poor aunt's tortured heart rose in rebellion and words came. No, be comforted. She is well. The sick woman put all her happy heart in her gratitude. Thank God for those dear words. Kiss me. How I worship you for saying them. Hester told this incident to Hannah, who received it with a rebuking look, and said coldly, Sister, it was a lie. Hester's lip trembled piteously. She choked down a sob and said, Oh, Hannah, it was a sin, but I could not help it. I could not endure the fright and the misery that were in her face. No matter, it was a lie. God will hold you to account for it. Oh, I know it, I know it, cried Hester, wringing her hands. But even if it were now, I could not help it. I know I should do it again. Then take my place with Helen in the morning. I will make the report myself. Hester clung to her sister, begging and imploring. Don't, Hannah. Oh, don't. You will kill her. I will at least speak the truth. 
In the morning, she had a cruel report to bear to the mother, and she braced herself for the trial. When she returned from her mission, Hester was waiting, pale and trembling in the hall. She whispered, "'Oh, how did she take it, that poor desolate mother?' Hannah's eyes were swimming in tears. She said, God, forgive me. I told her the child was well. Hester gathered her, gathered her to her heart with a grateful, God bless you, Hannah, and poured out her thankfulness in an inundation of worshiping praises. After that, the two knew the limit of their strength and accepted their fate. They surrendered humbly and abandoned themselves to the hard requirements of the situation. Daily they told the morning lie and confessed their sin in prayer, not asking forgiveness as not being worthy of it, but only wishing to make record that they realized their wickedness and were not desiring to hide it or to excuse it. Daily, as the fair young idol of the house sank lower and lower, the sorrowful old aunts painted her glowing bloom and her fresh young beauty to the wan mother and winced under the stabs her ecstasies of joy and gratitude that it gave her. In the first days, while the child had strength to hold a pencil, she wrote fond little love notes to her mother in which she concealed her illness, and these the mother read and reread through happy eyes wet with thankful tears and kissed them over and over again and treasured them as precious things under her pillow. Then came a day when the strength was gone from the hand and the mind wondered and the tongue babbled pathetic incoherences. This was a sore dilemma for the poor aunts. There were no love notes for the mother. They did not know what to do. Hester began a carefully studied and plausible explanation, but lost track of it and grew confused. Suspicion began to show in the mother's face, then alarm. Hester saw it, recognized the imminence of the danger, and descended to the emergency, pulling herself resolutely together and plucking Victor from the open jaws of defeat. In a placid and convincing voice, she said, I thought it might distress you to know it, but Helen spent the night at the Sloan's. There was a little party there, and although she did not want to go, and you so sick, we persuaded her, she being young and needing the innocent pastimes of youth, and we believing you would approve. Be sure she will write the moment she comes. How good you are, and how dear and thoughtful for us both. Approve? Why, I thank you with all my heart, my poor little exile. Tell her I want her to have every pleasure she can. I would not rob her of one. Only let her keep her health, that is all I ask. Don't let that suffer. I could not bear it. How thankful I am that she escaped this infection, and what a narrow risk she ran. Aunt Hester, think of that lovely face all dulled and burned with fever. I can't bear the thought of it. Keep her health. Keep her bloom. I can see her now, the dainty creature, with her big blue earnest eyes, so sweet and oh so sweet and gentle and winning. Is she as beautiful as ever, dear Aunt Hester? Oh, more beautiful and bright and charming than she ever was before, if such thing can be. And Hester turned away and fumbled with the medicine bottles to hide her shame and grief. Chapter 5 After a little, both aunts were laboring upon a difficult and baffling work in Helen's chamber. Patiently and earnestly, with their stiff old fingers, they were trying to forge the required note. They made failure after failure, but they improved little by little all the time. The pity of it all, the pathetic humor of it, there was none to see. They themselves were unconscious of it. 
Often their tears fell upon the notes and spoiled them. Sometimes a single misformed word made a note risky, which could have been ventured but for that. But at last Hannah produced one whose script was a good enough imitation of Helen's to pass by any but a suspicious eye, and bountifully enriched it with the petting phrases and loving nicknames that had been familiar on the child's lips from her nursery days. She carried it to the mother, who took it with avidity and kissed it and fondled it, reading its precious words over and over again, and dwelling with deep contentment upon its closing paragraph. Mousy darling, if I could only see you and kiss your eyes and feel your arms about me, I am so glad my practicing does not disturb you. Get well soon. Everybody is good to me, but I am so lonesome without you, dear mamma. The poor child, I know just how she feels. She cannot be quite happy without me, and I, oh, I live in the light of her eyes. Tell her she must practice all she pleases, and Aunt Hannah, tell her I can't hear the piano this far, nor hear her dear voice when she sings. God knows I wish I could. No one knows how sweet that voice is to me. And to think, some day it will be silent. What are you crying for? Only because, because it, it was just a memory. When I came away, she was singing. Loch Lamond, the pathos of it. It always moves me so much when she sings that. And me too. How heartbreakingly beautiful it is when some youthful sorrow is brooding in her breast and she sings it for the mystic healing it brings. Aunt Hannah, dear Margaret, I am very ill. Sometimes it comes over me that I shall never hear that dear voice again. Oh, don't, don't, Margaret, I, I can't bear it. Margaret was moved and distressed and said gently, There, there, let, let me put my arms around you, don't cry. There, put your cheek to mine. Be comforted. I wish to live. I will live if I can. Ah, what could she do without me? Does she often speak of me? But but I know she does. Oh, all the time, all the time. My sweet child, she wrote me the note the moment she came home. Yes, the first moment. She would not wait to take off her things. I knew it. It is her dear, impulsive, affectionate way. I knew it without asking, but I wanted to hear you say it. The petted wife knows she is loved, but she makes her husband tell her so every day, just for the joy of hearing it. She used the pen this time. That is better. The pencil marks could rub out, and I should grieve for that. Did you suggest that she use the pen? Yeah, no, she, it, it was her own idea. The mother looked her pleasure and said, I was hoping you would say that. There was never such a dear and thoughtful child. Aunt Hannah, dear Margaret, go and tell her I think of her all the time and worship her. Why, you are crying again. Don't be so worried about me, dear. I think there is nothing to fear yet. The grieving messenger carried her message and piously delivered it to unheeding ears. The girl babbled on, unaware, looking up, at her with wandering and startled eyes flaming with fever, eyes in which there was no light of recognition. Are you? No, you are not my mother. I want her. Oh, I, I want her. She was here a minute ago. I, I did not see her go. Will she come? Will she come quickly? Will she come now? There are so many houses and they oppress me so and everything whirls and turns and whirls. Oh, my head, my head. 
and so she wandered on and on in her pain, flitting from one torturing fancy to another and tossing her arms about in a weary and ceaseless persecution of unrest. Poor old Hannah wetted and parched her lips and softly stroked the hot brow, murmuring endearing and pitying words and thanking the father of all that the mother was happy and did not know. Chapter 6 Daily the child sank lower and steadily lower towards the grave, and daily the sorrowing old watchers carried gilded tidings of her radiant health and loveliness to the happy mother, whose pilgrimage was also now nearing its end. And daily they forged lovely, loving and cheering notes in the child's hand, and stood by with remorseful consciences and bleeding hearts, and wept to see the grateful mother devour them, and adore them, and treasure them away as things beyond price, because of their sweet source, and sacred because her child's hand had touched them. At last came the kindly friend who brings healing and peace to all. The lights were burning low. And the solemn hush which precedes the dawn, vague figures flitted soundless along the dim hall and gathered silent and awed in Helen's chamber and grouped themselves about her bed, for a warning had gone forth and they knew. The dying girl lay with closed lids and unconscious, the drapery upon her breast faintly rising and falling as her wasting life ebbed away. At intervals, a sigh or a muffled sob broke upon the stillness. The same haunting thought was in all minds there, the pity of this death, the going out into the great darkness, and the mother not here to help and harden and bless. Helen stirred. Her hands began to grope wistfully about as if they sought something. She had been blind some hours. The end was come. All knew it. With a great sob, Hester gathered her to her breast, crying, Oh, my child! my darling. A rapturous light broke in the dying girl's face, for it mercifully vouchsafed her to mistake those sheltering arms for another's, and she went to her rest murmuring, Oh, Mama, I am so happy. I long for you. Now I can die. Two hours later, Hester made her report. The mother asked, How is it with the child? She is well. Chapter 7. A sheaf of white crepe and black was hung upon the door of the house, and there it swayed and rustled in the wind and whispered its tidings. At noon the preparation of the dead was finished, and in the coffin lay the fair young form, beautiful, and in the sweet face a great peace. Two mourners sat by it, grieving and worshipping, Hannah and the black woman Tilly. Hester came, and she was trembling, for a great trouble was upon her spirit. She said, she asked for a note. Hannah's face blanched. She had not thought of this. It had seemed that the pathetic service was ended, but she realized now that it could not be. For a little while, the two women stood looking into each other's face with vacant eyes. Then Hannah said, There is no way out of it. She must have it. She will suspect else. And she would find out. Yes, it would break her heart. She looked at the dead face, and her eyes filled. I will write it, she said. Hester carried it. The closing line said, Darling Mousie, sweet dear mother, we shall soon be together again. Is not that good news? And it is true. They all say it is true. The mother mourned, saying, 
Poor child, how will she bear it when she knows? I shall never see her again in life. It is hard, so hard. Does she not suspect? You guard her from that? She thinks you will soon be well. How good you are and careful, dear Aunt Hester. None goes near her who could carry the infection. It would be a crime. But you see her. With a distance between, yes. That is so good. Others one could not trust, but you two guardian angels. Steel is not so true as you. Others would be unfaithful, and many would, would be deceptive and lie. Hester's eyes fell, and her poor old lips trembled. Let me kiss you for her, Aunt Hester, and when I am gone and the danger is past, please place the kiss upon her dear lips some day, and say her mother sent it, and all her mother's broken heart is in it. Within the hour, Hester, raining tears upon the dead face, performed her pathetic mission. Chapter 8 Another day dawned and grew and spread its sunshine in the earth. Aunt Hannah brought comforting news to the failing mother and a happy note, which said again, We have but a little time to wait, darling mother, then we shall be together. The deep note of a bell came moaning down the wind. Aunt Hannah, it is tolling. Some poor soul is at rest, as I shall be soon. He will not let her forget me. Oh, God knows she never will. Do not you hear strange noises, Aunt Hannah? It sounds like the shuffling of many feet. We hoped you would not hear it, dear. It is a little company gathering for, for, for Helen's sake. Poor little prisoner, there will be music, and she loves it so. We thought you would not mind. Mind? Oh, no, no, give her everything her dear heart can desire. How good you two are to her, and how good to me. God bless you both always. After a listening pause, how lovely. It is her organ. Is she playing it herself, do you think? Faint and rich and inspiring, the chords floating to her ears on the still air. Yes, it is her touch, dear heart. I, I recognize it. They are singing. Why, it, it is a hymn. And the sacredest of all, the most touching, the most consoling. It seems to open the gates of paradise to me. If I could just die now. Faint and far, the rose the words rose out of the stillness. Nearer, my God, to thee, nearer to thee, e'en though it be a cross that raiseth me. With the closing of the hymn, another soul passed to his rest, and they that had been one in life were not sundered in death. The sisters, mourning and rejoicing, said, How blessed it was that she never knew. Chapter 9 at midnight they sat together grieving, and the angel of the Lord appeared in the midst, transfigured with the radiance not of earth, and speaking, said, For liars a place is appointed. There they burn in the fires of hell from everlasting unto everlasting. Repent! The bereaved fell upon their knees before him, and clapped, clasped their hands together, and bowed their gray heads, adoring. But their tongues clove to the roof of their mouths, and they were dumb. Speak! that I may bear the message to the chancery of heaven and bring again the decree from which there is no appeal. Then they bowed their heads yet lower, and one said, Our sin is great, and we suffer shame, but only perfect and final repentance can make us whole. 
and we are poor creatures who have learned our human weakness, and we know that if we were in those hard straits again, our hearts would fail again, and we should sin as before. The strong could prevail and be so saved, but we are lost. They lifted their heads in supplication. The angel was gone. While they marveled and wept, he came again, and bending low, he whispered the decree. Chapter 10 Was it heaven or hell? And that was the conclusion of Was It Heaven or Hell by Mark Twain. Thank you guys so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. I have two additional shorts for you tonight. The first is called Moonlight, and the final story tonight is called Bellflower. Now, both of these are by the French master of the short story himself, Guy de Maupassant, and they were both published in 1883. Again, this first one is called Moonlight. Madame Julie Robert was expecting her elder sister, Madame Henriette Latour, who had just returned from a trip to Switzerland. The Latour household had left nearly five weeks before. Madame Henriette had allowed her husband to return alone to their estate in Calvados, where some business required his attention and had come to spend a few days in Paris with her sister. Night came on. In the quiet parlor, Madame Robert was reading in the twilight in an absent-minded way, raising her eyebrows whenever she heard a sound. At last, she heard a ring at the door, and her sister appeared, wrapped in a traveling cloak. And without any formal greeting, they grabbed each other in an affectionate embrace, only desisting for a moment to give each other another hug. Then they talked about their health about their respective families, and a thousand other things, gossiping, jerking out hurried, broken sentences as they followed each other about while Madame Henriette was removing her hat and veil. It was now quite dark. Madame Robert rang for a lamp, and as soon as it was brought in, she scanned her sister's face and was on the point of of embracing her once more, but she held back, scared and astonished at the other's appearance. On her temples, Madame Latour had two large locks of white hair. All the rest of her hair was of a glossy raven black hue, but there alone at each side of her head ran, as it were, two silvery streams which were immediately lost in the black mass surrounding them. She was, nevertheless, only 24 years old, and this change had come on suddenly since her departure for Switzerland. Without moving, Madame Robert gazed at her in astonishment, tears rising to her eyes as she thought that some mysterious and terrible calamity must have befallen her sister. She asked, what is the matter with you, Henriette? Smiling with a sad face, the smile of one who is heartsick, the other replied, why, nothing, I assure you. Were you noticing my white hair? But Madame Robert impetuously seized her by the shoulders and with a searching glance at her repeated, What is the matter with you? Tell me what is the matter with you. And if you tell me a falsehood, I'll soon find out. They remained face to face, and Madame Henriette, who looked as if she were about to faint, had two pearly tears in the corners of her drooping eyes. Her sister continued, What has happened to you? What is the matter with you? Answer me. Then, in a subdued voice, the other murmured, I have, I have a lover. And hiding her forehead on the shoulder of her younger sister, she sobbed. Then, when she had grown a little calmer, when the heaving of her breast had subsided, 
she commenced to unbosom herself as if to cast forth the secret from herself to empty this sorrow of hers into a sympathetic heart. Thereupon, holding each other's hands tightly clasped, the two women went over to a sofa in a dark corner of the room, into which they sank, and the younger sister, passing her arm over the elder one's neck and drawing her close to her heart, listened. Oh, I know that there is no excuse for me. I, I do not understand myself, and since that day I feel as if I were mad. Be careful, my child, about yourself. Be careful. If you only knew how weak we are, how quickly we yield and fall. It takes so little, so little, so little a moment of tenderness, one of those sudden fits of melancholy which come over you, one of those longings to open your arms to love, to cherish something which we all have at certain moments. You know my husband, and you know how fond I am of him, but he is mature and sensible and cannot even comprehend the tender vibrations of a woman's heart. He is always the same, always good, always smiling, always kind, always perfect. Oh, how I sometimes have wished that he would grab me roughly in his arms, that he would embrace me with those slow, sweet kisses which make two beings intermingle, which are like mute confidences. How I have wished that he were foolish, even weak, so that he should have need of me, of my caresses, of my tears." This all seems very silly, but we women are made like that. How can we help it? And yet the thought of deceiving him never entered my mind. Now it has happened, without love, without reason, without anything, simply because the moon shone one night on the lake of Lucerne. During the month we were traveling together, my husband, with his calm indifference, paralyzed my enthusiasm, extinguished my poetic ardor, when we were descending the mountain path at sunrise, when, as the four horses galloped along with diligence, we saw in the transparent morning haze, valleys, woods, streams, and villages, I clasped my hands with delight and said to him, How beautiful it is, dear! Give me a kiss! Kiss me now! He only answered with a smile of chilling kindliness, There is no reason why we should kiss each other because you like the landscape. And his words froze me to the heart. It seems to me that when people love each other, they ought to feel more moved by love than ever in the presence of beautiful scenes. In fact, I was brimming over with poetry which kept me, which he kept me from expressing. I was almost like a boiler filled with steam and hermetically sealed. One evening, we had four days been staying in a hotel at Fluellen. Robert, having one of his sick headaches, went to bed immediately after dinner, and I went to take a walk all alone along the edge of the lake. It was a night such as one reads of in fairy tales. The moon full shone, showed itself in the middle of the sky. The tall mountains with their snowy crests seemed to wear silver crowns. The waters of the lake glittered with tiny, shining ripples. The air was mild with that kind of penetrating warmth which enervates us till we are ready to faint, to be deeply affected without any apparent cause. But how sensitive, how vibrating the heart is at such moments, how quickly it beats, how intense it is its emotions. I sat down on the grass and gazed at that vast, melancholy, and fascinating lake, and a strange feeling arose in me. I was seized with an insatiable need of love. I revolt against the gloomy dullness of my life. What 
Would it never be my fate to wander arm in arm with the man I loved along a moon-kissed bank like this? Was I never to feel on my lips those kisses so deep, delicious, and intoxicating, which lovers exchange on nights that seem to have been made by God for tenderness? Was I never to know ardent, feverish love in the moonlit shadows of a summer's night? And I burst out weeping like a crazy woman. I, I heard something stirring behind me. A man stood there, gazing at me. When I turned my head round, he recognized me and, advancing, said, "'You are weeping, madame?' It was a young barrister who was traveling with his mother and whom we had often met. His eyes had frequently followed me. I was so confused that I did not know what answer to give or what to think of the situation. I told him I felt ill.' He walked on by my side in a natural and respectful manner and began talking to me about what we had seen during our trip. All that I had felt he translated into words. Everything that made me thrill he understood perfectly, better than I did myself. And all of a sudden he repeated some verses of Alfred de Musset, and I felt myself choking, seized with indescribable emotion. It seemed to me that the mountains themselves, the lake, the moonlight— were singing to me about things ineffably sweet. And it happened. I don't know how, I don't know why, in any sort of hallucination. As for him, I did not see him again till the morning of his departure. He gave me his card, and sinking into her sister's arms, Madame Latour broke into groans, almost into shrieks. Then Madame Robert with a self-contained and serious air, said very gently, You see, sister, very often it is not a man that we love, but love itself. And your real lover that night was the moonlight. I now present Belle Flower by Guy de Maupassant. How strange are those old recollections which haunt us without our being able to get rid of them. This one is so very old that I cannot understand how it has clung so vividly and tenaciously to my memory. Since then, I have seen so many sinister things, either affecting or terrible, that I am astonished at not being able to pass a single day without the face of Mother Bellflower recurring to my mind's eye, just as I knew her formerly, long, long ago, when I was 10 or 12 years old. She was an old seamstress who came to my parents' house once every week, every Thursday, to mend the linen. My parents lived in one of those country houses called chateaux, which are merely old houses with pointed roofs, to which are attached three or four adjacent farms. The village, a large village, almost a small market town, was a few hundred yards off and nestled round the church, a red brick church which had become black with age. Well, every Thursday, Mother Bellflower came between half past six and seven in the morning and went immediately into the linen room and began to work. She was a tall, thin, bearded, or rather hairy woman, for she had a beard all over her face, a surprising and unexpected beard, growing in improbable tufts and curly bunches which looked as if they had been sewn by a madman over that great face, the face of a gendarme in petticoats. She had them on her nose, under her nose, round her nose, on her chin, her cheeks, and her eyebrows, which were extraordinarily thick and long and quite gray, bushy, and bristling, 
and looked exactly like a pair of mustaches stuck on there by mistake. She limped, not like lame people generally do, but like a ship pitching. When she planted her great bony vibrant body on her sound leg, she seemed to be preparing to mount some enormous wave, and then suddenly she dipped as if to disappear in a in an abyss and buried herself in the ground. Her walk reminded one of a ship in a storm, and her head, which was always covered with an enormous white cap, whose ribbons fluttered down her back, seemed to traverse the horizon from north to south and from south to north at each limp. I adored Mother Bellflower. As soon as I was up, I used to go into the linen room where I found her installed at work with a foot warmer under her feet. As soon as I arrived, she made me take the foot warmer and sit upon it so that I might not catch cold in that large chilly room under the roof. That draws the blood from your head, she would say to me. She told me stories while mending the linen with her long cricket nimble fingers behind her magnifying spectacles for age had impaired her sight. Her eyes were her eyes appeared enormous to me, strangely profound, double. As far as I can remember from the things which she told me and by which my childish heart was moved, she had the large heart of a poor woman. She told me what had happened in the village, how a cow had escaped from the cowhouse and had been found the next morning in front of Prosper Malay's mill looking at the sails turning, or about a hen's egg which had been found in the church belfry without anyone being able to understand what creature had been there to lay it, or the queer story of Jean Pila's dog, who had gone ten leagues to bring back his master's breeches, which a tramp had stolen while they were hanging up to dry out of doors after he had been caught in the rain. She told me these simple adventures in such a warm manner that in my mind they assumed the proportions of never-to-be-forgotten dramas, of grand and mysterious poems, and the ingenious stories invented by the poets, which my mother told me in the evening, they had none of the flavor, none of the fullness or the vigor of the peasant woman's narratives. Well, one Thursday when I had spent all the morning in listening to Mother Clochette, I wanted to go upstairs to her again during the day after picking hazelnuts with the manservant in the wood behind the farm. I remember it all as clearly as what happened only yesterday. On opening the door of the linen room, I saw the old seamstress lying on the floor by the side of her chair, her face turned down and her arms stretched out, but still holding her needle in one hand and one of my shirts in the other. One of her legs in a blue stocking, the longer one no doubt, was extended under her chair and her spectacles glistened by the wall where they had rolled away from her. I ran away uttering shrill cries. They all came running and in a few minutes I was told that Mother Clochette was dead. I cannot describe the profound, poignant, terrible emotion which stirred my childish heart. I went slowly down into the drawing room and hid myself in a dark corner in the depths of a great old armchair where I knelt and wept. I remained there for a long time, no doubt, for night came on. Suddenly someone came in with a lamp, without seeing me, however, and I heard my father and mother talking with the medical man, whose voice I recognized. He had been sent for immediately, and he was explaining the cause of the accident, of which I understood nothing, however. Then he sat down and had a glass of liqueur and a biscuit. He went on talking, and what he said then will remain engraved on my mind until I die. I think I can give the exact words he used. Ah, 
he said. The poor woman? She broke her leg the day of my arrival here. I had not even had time to wash my hands after getting off the diligence before I was sent for in all haste, for it was a very bad case, very bad. She was seventeen and a pretty girl, very pretty. Would anyone believe it? I have never told her story before. In fact, no one but myself and one other person who is no longer living in this part of the country ever knew it. Now that she is dead, I may be less discreet. A young assistant teacher had just come to live in the village. He was good-looking and had the bearing of a soldier. All the girls ran after him, but he was disdainful. Besides that, he was very much afraid of his superior, the schoolmaster, old Grabu, who occasionally got out of bed the wrong foot first. Old Grabu already employed, employed pretty Hortense, who has just died here and who was afterward nicknamed Clochette. The assistant master singled out the pretty young girl who was no doubt flattered at being chosen by this disdainful conqueror. At any rate, she fell in love with him, and he succeeded in persuading her to give him a first meeting in the hayloft behind the school at night after she had done her day sewing. She pretended to go home, but instead of going downstairs, when she left the grabbuses, she went upstairs and hid among the hay to wait for her lover. He soon joined her, and he was beginning to say pretty things to her when the door of the hayloft opened and the schoolmaster appeared and asked, "'What are you doing up there, Sigisper?' Feeling sure that he would be caught, the young schoolmaster lost his presence of mind and replied stupidly, "'I came up here to rest a little among the bundles of hay, Monsieur Grabu.' The loft was very large and absolutely dark. Sigisber pushed the frightened girl to the farther end and said, "'Go there and hide yourself.' I shall lose my situation, so get away and hide yourself. When the schoolmaster heard the whispering, he continued, Why, you are not by yourself. Yes, I am, Monsieur Grabu. But you are not, for you are talking. I swear I am, Monsieur Grabu. I will soon find out, the old man replied, and double locking the door, he went down to get a light. Then the young man who was a coward such as one sometimes meets, lost his head, and he repeated, having grown furious all of a sudden, hide yourself so that he may not find you. You will deprive me of my bread for my whole life. You will ruin my whole career. Do hide yourself. They could hear the key turning in the lock again, and Hortense ran to the window, which looked out onto the street, opened it quickly, and then, in a low and determined voice said, he will come and pick me up when he is gone. And she jumped out. Old Grabu found nobody and went down again in great surprise. A quarter of an hour later, Monsieur Sigisbeer came to me and related his adventure. The girl had remained at the foot of the wall, unable to get up. As she had fallen from the second story, and I went with him to fetch her. It was raining in torrents, and I brought the unfortunate girl home with me, for the right leg was broken in three places, and the bones had come out through the flesh. She did not complain, and merely said with admirable resignation, I am punished, well punished. I sent for assistance and for the work girl's friends, and told them a made-up story of a, of a runaway carriage which had knocked her down and lamed her outside my door. They believed me, and the gendarmes for a whole month tried in vain to find the author of this accident. That is all. 
Now I say that this woman was a heroine and had the fiber of those who accomplished the grandest deeds in history. That was her only love affair, and she died a virgin. She was a martyr, a noble soul, a sublimely devoted woman. And if I did not absolutely admire her, I should not have told you this story, which I would never tell anyone during her life. You understand why. The doctor ceased. Mama cried, and Papa said some words which I did not catch. Then they left the room, and I remained on my knees in the armchair and sobbed, while I heard a strange noise of heavy footsteps and something knocking against the side of the staircase. They were carrying away Clochette's body. And that is the end of Bellflower by Guy de Maupassant. Thank you so very much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time.